Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. Getting a late start this week. Um, up in New York, recording at a friend's place. Had a wedding to go to over the weekend. Uh, the first thing I want to update you on, this is actually from Friday. This was written up by Kyle Anzalone. The U.S. announced a new $775 million weapons package for Ukraine. So this new arms package, it brings total U.S. military aid to Ukraine. And this is just weapons that they've directly shipped to Ukraine. Brings it to over $10 billion. This is the 18th weapons package that the U.S. has announced. Just a massive amount of arms that are being shipped into the country. And the package, it includes Scan Eagle drones that are made by Boeing. And they are used for their surveillance drones. It's the first time that they're sending these type of drones to Ukraine. Package also includes ammunition for the HIMARS. The, those are the mobile rocket launch systems that the U.S. has been giving Ukraine. That They have a range of about 50 miles. Includes 16 howitzers, 36,000 rounds of artillery, high-speed anti-radar missiles, 1,000 anti-tank tow missiles, and 1,000 anti-tank javelin missiles, and also mine clearing equipment. So that's just... It such a massive amount of weapons that have been shipped directly to the country when we know that there is virtually no oversight um, on where these arms are going once they enter the country. And the U.S. is also spending money in other ways. The Pentagon is spending money to replenish the stockpiles that they're sending Ukraine. They're spending money for troop deployments in Eastern Europe that are a response to the war. And the U.S. is also just giving aid directly to the Ukrainian government, this budgetary aid. And also there's economic and other types of assistance. So just so much spending. Um, the total um, amount that the U.S. has authorized to spend on the war so far is the $40 billion bill that President Biden signed into law in May. And then before that, there was a $13.6 billion bill that was approved when the war first started. So what is that? $53.6 billion just in in really half a year uh, since this war has been going and you know we just should expect to see more and more spending but okay so the first story this is tuesday's page and this is about one of the biggest news stories over the weekend uh alexander dugan who's a russian writer philosopher he his daughter was killed in a car bombing inside russia on saturday night his daughter daria Dugina, and she was killed, and it appears that they were targeting Dugan. She was driving his car. They attended an event together, and he was supposed to take his car, but he didn't for some reason at the last minute, and she was killed while driving her father's car, and she was a journalist um, and 29 years old. Now, on Monday, this is the big news on Monday, is that you Russia... Russia's Federal Security Service, the FSB, they formally accused Ukraine of being behind this killing. They accused what they called Kiev's secret services. Now, for their part, Ukraine has denied this, that they had anything to do with this killing. Uh, Russia named a suspect, Natalia Volvik, a 43-year-old Ukrainian national. They said she's fled to Estonia since. Um they claim that she's a member of the Azov Battalion, which is an infamous neo-Nazi group that is part of Ukraine's National Guard. We saw a lot 
they were in the news a lot earlier in the war during the Battle of Mariupol, which was their major stronghold. Um, that a lot of the fighters there at the steel plant were Azov battalion guys. Um, so with Russia accusing Ukraine, you know, we don't know really exactly what happened. They haven't really presented evidence that this, to show that this woman was guilty, but they put out some pretty specific details about her plan. And you could read it at antiwar.com. This is from Connor Freeman. It's our top story. If you want to read the, the details about what Russia is saying this woman did. Um, but, and Connor points out that Ukraine has, uh, there's been a few explosions in Crimea and in Russian territory since the war started. Crimea ones were more recent and Ukraine hasn't formally taken responsibility, but you know, it's pretty clear that Ukraine was responsible for those attacks. And we, there were leaks to the press with Ukraine taking responsibility. So, but this would be a major escalation, even though it seemed they, it doesn't seem like they killed the the right person. A targeted killing like this would be a major escalation. And Dugan, the way that the West portrays him is is isn't exactly right. They say that he's he's been described as Putin's brain, and we've seen all these reports since his daughter was killed about how he's super influential. Uh, but that's not really the case, from what I understand. I don't know too much about Dugan. I know he's a nationalist. He wants to see Russia restored as a major superpower. And, but he's been very critical of Putin. He doesn't think Putin has gone far enough in the war. And he, there were things he wanted him to do before the war that he didn't do. Very critical, has been very critical lately on Telegram of the Russian government. So kind of this idea that he's, you know, the mastermind behind Putin's war, which is how a lot of Western media outlets portray it, it I don't think is, is right. Um, and one reason why Ukraine denied it is that they said they wouldn't kill such a marginal figure is how they described him. Um, so, yeah, we're not really sure exactly what happened here. But the fact that Russia is blaming it on Ukraine implies that they might do something. So we might see an escalation in the war as a result. The next one here, this is from Kyle Anzalone in an interview with the Financial Times, Russia's permanent representative to the UN in Geneva basically said that they've had no contacts with Western diplomats at the UN since the war in Ukraine started. And this is just another example on a long list of a Russian official saying, you know, there's no contacts with the West, especially with the US. And you just think about how dangerous that is, as we've had so many officials warn that the risk of nuclear war is higher now than it's ever been. And Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, he spoke recently with Sergei Lavrov for the first time since the war started on February 24th. But that conversation was focused on Brittany Griner, the WNBA star that's she was just convicted of marijuana possession. I think she was sentenced to nine years. Um, but that's it. That's all they talked about. He said and some other issues, the grain deal. But Blinken said it wasn't going to be a negotiation about the war in Ukraine and it wasn't. And just the fact that there isn't diplomatic contacts is just very dangerous. We're really on edge here. And another example of what this has done is Russia suspended inspections of its nuclear, it suspended US inspections of its nuclear weapons systems under the New START Treaty, which is the last nuclear arms control treaty between the US and Russia. They're accusing, they're saying that the US isn't letting Russian inspectors in 
and that the U.S. requested to inspect Russia's stockpile. So then they said, you know what, that's it. We're suspending it until we can work it out. And we haven't really seen any great efforts, any efforts by the U.S., at least publicly, to get that treaty restored. So that's dangerous. Um, it's just the state of the world today as there's just no diplomacy and no communication. This next one here, Estonia wants the EU to ban Russian tourists. So Estonia is one of the first EU countries to respond to a demand from Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president. Zelensky asked for you know, the West to ban Russian travelers to punish them for the war. They said Russia... Zelensky said that the whole population of Russia is responsible for the war, and Estonia has echoed this. Estonia's foreign minister told Politico that all Russians bear a moral responsibility for the war and that they should be punished. But Estonia's view, it's not shared across Europe, and it doesn't appear to be shared by the United States. Um, German Chancellor Olaf Schultz, he said last week that Berlin would not support a ban on Russian travelers, arguing that the conflict in Ukraine is not the war of Russian citizens. And the U.S. also rejected Zelensky's demand to ban Russian travelers. A State Department spokesperson told Reuters on Monday that the U.S. has already banned the visas of high-level Russian officials and said that they want to leave pathways to dissidents that want to leave Russia open. And they added that the U.S. wants to draw a line between the actions of the Russian government and the people of Russia. Although I had to mention that the U.S. sanctions the Western economic campaign against Russia. As history has shown us, sanctions just hurt civilians. They hurt ordinary people in the target country. And we know that these sanctions aren't hurting Putin, aren't hurting the Russian government, and aren't hurting you know Russia's uh, gas companies because they're just making record profits off oil and Rush and Putin is fine, but there definitely is some economic shock. Mostly I would guess from the, the exodus of Western companies from Russia, you know, that's, that's a big hit to an economy. They'll recover, but you know, people are feeling it and it's, it's not Putin. It's just, you know, your everyday Russians and that this ban that would just punish them. And there's already been, so for the most part, Russians can't fly to the U S or, anywhere in Europe, but they have been entering, you know, neighboring countries like Estonia, Finland to fly elsewhere in Europe. And that's what Estonia, they, they want the, the whole EU to ban Russian travelers uh, altogether. Um, it's just, you know, collective punishment for Putin's war. And just imagine if Americans were held to that standard. Okay, so the next one here, Iran says that the U.S. is procrastinating over reviving the nuclear deal. Iran on Monday accused the U.S. of procrastinating as Washington is still reviewing Tehran's response to an EU proposal to revive the nuclear deal known as the JCPOA. Iran submitted its response to the EU proposal last week, which reportedly includes guarantees that would discourage the U.S. from leaving the JCPOA again. But... Uh, Joseph Burrell, he's the EU's foreign policy chief. Now, again, the EU has led this. This is their effort to revive the nuclear deal. They put forward what they call the final offer. Iran responded. They wanted to clarify or add a couple things, and the U.S. is reviewing it. But Burrell said that Iran's response was reasonable and that he hopes the U.S. will respond this week. And he wants the U.S. response 
to what Iran put forward to allow us to end negotiations is what he said. So that signals that he wants the U.S. to accept Iran's offer. It's good enough that the U.S. should accept it. So everybody really is waiting on the U.S. And now on Monday, Ned Price, the State Department spokesman, he said that the deal is closer than it has been before, but that gaps remain. But he said that the U.S. was encouraged by the fact that Tehran dropped the demand to have Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. They were designated as a foreign terrorist organization by the Trump administration, which is a sweeping sanction. It targets any current and former members. Iran initially wanted it lifted, but they dropped that demand. And that's a pretty major concession. It's a pretty reasonable one, I think, to ask to have that lifted because it was put on by the Trump administration after the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA. But Iran is so willing to, they, they really want this deal to be restored, to get sanctions lifted so they could start exporting their oil without any problems that they drop that demand. So it really is just, um, we're just waiting on the U.S. And it's really just in the U.S.'s court, as it has been really since Biden came into office. At any time, he could have just said, let me just lift all of Trump's sanctions and Iran would have, they said that would have been enough for them to come back into the, bring their nuclear program back into the very strict limits of the JCPOA. Next one here, the U.S. tries to reassure Israel on these, on this potential Iran deal. This is according to a report from Axios from over the weekend. They said that the U.S. and Israel have been in contact about this deal and that the U.S. has been trying to reassure Israel. We've seen a lot of media reports that said this new deal, that the U.S. It would make a bunch of concessions to Iran, which isn't uh, the right characterization, I think. From what the reports said, all Iran is really concerned with is some guarantees that if the U.S., withdraws from the JCPOA again, have, as they did before, that there would be some consequences, that there would be some sanctions exemptions for a certain period after that, or that their nuclear program would kind of automatically advance if the U.S. left. And I think that's pretty reasonable because the U.S. was the party that left the deal. <laughs> um, so it's not really a concession. But so that's what the... Uh, the U.S. has been trying to tell Israel, who's been very critical of of these talks, saying that the U.S. should walk away. Um, a U.S. official told Axios, characterized to Axios what the U.S. has communicated to Israel. That official said, quote, a deal might be closer than it was two weeks ago, but the outcome remains uncertain as some gaps remain. In any case, it doesn't seem to be imminent, end quote. So again, we see that gaps remain line. So tells me that they do, you know, they already have their excuse that if they don't want to revive it, they'll say, oh, th that they have their reasons. And Israeli officials confirmed to Axios that there have been talks with the U.S. over the issue, but they said that their concerns have not been eased. They said that they're not reassured. Israel's national security advisor has traveled to Washington, and he is expected to hold talks on Iran on Tuesday with Jake Sullivan, uh, his American counterpart. And with the possibility of the U.S. and Iran making a deal, Israeli officials, they're making their opposition known publicly. Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz said Monday that Israel will work to bring a potential nuclear deal down. 
Israeli officials have always hinted at taking military action against Iran if the deal is revived and Israel has previously carried out covert attacks inside Iran to sabotage negotiations between the U.S. I linked to back in April 2021, right when the U.S. and Iran resumed uh, indirect negotiations on the JCPOA. Israel carried out a covert attack on Iran's Natanz nuclear facility. There was an explosion there, and that led to Iran advancing its nuclear program more. All the stuff that Israel does, that's the result. So if they really cared about Iran's nuclear program, they would favor a revival of the JCPOA. Okay, so the next one here. China forgives debt for 17 African nations. So I thought this one was interesting. This is from uh, this is an Australian news site. But we always hear the U.S. talk about China's what they call their debt trap, debt trap diplomacy. And Anthony Blinken, he recently went on a tour of Africa, and their whole thing is uh, that China's trying to take advantage of these countries. And then China, they announced that they they're waiving. Uh, 23 interest-free loans for 17 African countries that had matured by the end of 2021. So it kind of goes against the U.S. narrative against China of what they're doing in the continent of Africa. Okay, so the next one. Indiana governor leads third U.S. delegation to Taiwan this month. This is Eric Holcomb. He's a Republican governor of Indiana he arrived in Taiwan on Sunday, and it's marking the third U.S. delegation to visit the island this month amid soaring tensions between the U.S. and China. They just won't stop visiting the island. Holcomb, um, he said that the tr trip was meant to boost economic cooperation between the U.S. and Taiwan with a focus on the semiconductor in industry. The visit came after the U.S. announced that it will begin formal trade talks with Taiwan this fall. Taiwan is the world's leading producer of semiconductors, and the frequent high-level U.S. visits to the island came after President Biden signed the Chips and Science Act into law, and that includes $52 billion in subsidies for domestic chip manufacturing. Holcomb met with Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen, and she called for the U.S. and Taiwan to increase economic ties, including in the area of semiconductors. Um, it, it, it looks like that the U.S. is trying to get Taiwanese companies to use some of this money, the, some of these subsidies they, they want to use to entice Taiwanese companies to open up manufacturing facilities inside the United States. But this is the third delegation again. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, she visited Taiwan at the beginning of the month, which sparked the largest ever Chinese military drills around the island. And her visit was followed by a delegation led by Senator Ed Markey, the Democrat from Massachusetts. So this is a lot of delegations in one month, because this is something that I follow pretty closely. And it used to be pretty rare, rarely that a, we would see a congressional delegation go to Taiwan. And they've become more frequent over the past couple of years. But and they're really stepping up. I mean, three within a month. Is, is a lot. And China's making it clear that it's very unhappy with what the U.S. is doing. They view it as the U.S. moving away from the one China policy. And they've warned over and over again that the U.S. support for what they call Taiwan's independence forces is a red line that could lead to war. 
But U.S. officials continue to ignore the warnings and the high level delegations will likely continue. There's no sign that this is going to slow down, that the U.S. is going to reverse course here. Uh, the next one, this might be goodish news. Uh, we'll have to see. Uh, the U.S., this is according to a report from Reuters. They cited three sources who said the U.S. plans to continue talks with the Taliban on frozen Afghan funds. So the U.S. has $7 billion of Afghanistan's central bank reserves that they seized after the Taliban took o- over Kabul, which happened uh, over about a year ago. Um, after the U.S. claimed that they killed Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda, in a drone strike in Kabul, there were reports and, and comments from U.S. officials that said they were not going to release these funds, that they're going to cut off talks with the Taliban because they're saying Zawahiri being in Kabul violates the Doha agreement, which paved the way for the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. For their part, the Taliban denies knowing that Zawahiri was in Kabul, and they haven't confirmed that he was killed in the the drone strike. It's really just the U.S. We have to take the U.S.'s word that Zawahiri was killed. They've, They've said they have no DNA evidence. I'm not saying they totally made it up, but it is it's important to understand that it is just the word of the United States that Zawahiri was killed in this strike. Um, so what it looks like the U.S. is going to keep talking to the Taliban. Now, it's going to be hard. The idea of them working out an agreement to actually get this money where it should go to help people in Afghanistan that are facing starvation and all these food shortages and it's just a dire humanitarian situation in the country um they're 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 accusing the taliban of not complying with international demands such as they they want to replace the u.s wants the taliban to replace the taliban officials that they put in charge of afghanistan central bank with other officials just things like that um that the taliban aren't complying with, according to the U.S. Earlier this year, President Biden signed an executive order that would make $3.5 billion of the Afghan reserves available for the families of 9-11 victims, even though the people of Afghanistan had nothing to do with the September 11th attacks. But last week, a group of 9-11 families, they sent a letter to President Biden urging him to return the funds to the Afghan people. The letter said that the families didn't want the money if it would take money away from starving Afghans. I thought that was a pretty powerful letter that they sent. Hopefully it has some sway on how the administration is going to approach this. And the UN has warned that a staggering 95% of Afghans are not getting enough to eat and that nearly one half of the population is facing acute hunger. So pretty grim statistics coming out of Afghanistan. And on top of the seizing the funds, the U.S. maintains sanctions on the Taliban and that, you know, the Taliban are the Afghan government. So that means any international bank business isn't trading with Afghanistan because they could be subject to sanctions, just making the situation so much worse. Last one here is from Jason Ditz, UAE backed separatists take South Yemen oil fields. So there's been some more fighting in Southern Yemen and fighters of the Southern Transitional Council known as the STC have been making gains in the Shabwa province. And this is just an example of how the U.S. and Saudi-backed Yemeni government um, that used to be ran by Hadi, President Hadi, who hasn't, who is 
exiled from Yemen in 2015, but he's been replaced with this presidential council, they call it. Um, but this government, what the U.S. recognizes, they barely control any territory. And then there's also been this fighting on and off besides fighting in the Houthis with the Houthis in the north, in North Yemen. That's the territory that the Houthis control. In the south, there's been this separatist movement. And throughout this whole war has been fighting on and off. And it's just an example of how that government, what they call the internationally recognized government, really has no control over the country at all. And these this these separatists are backed by the UAE and they're part of the Saudi led coalition that's been waging war on Yemen for so long. But it's just a mess. And this, you know, threatens the very fragile ceasefire that's been holding relatively well. We still haven't seen Saudi airstrikes in Yemen since March, which is huge. But there's also other issues. The blockade's still being enforced to an extent. They let they've let some ships in and they've been letting some flights out of the Sana'a airport, but it's not People are still very food deprived in Yemen, and there really needs to be some sort of big push to end this war. That's why there's been legislation introduced in Congress to end U.S. support for the war, which you could call your House member and senator to tell them to co-sponsor these bills. You could go to 1833stopwar.com, follow a prompt there, and you could dial that number, 1833stopwar, and it takes you to your rep's office, your senator's office. Okay, so that's it for the news for today. Got a lot of good viewpoints, as always. One from Ted Snyder. But um, I will be back tomorrow. I'm in New York now. I'm driving back home to Virginia right right after I record this. So I'll be back uh, tomorrow with the show for you guys. If everything goes smoothly, it should. I should be fine. But uh, if you want to contact the show, you can email us at news at antiwar.com you can follow me on twitter you can support the show by donating to antiwar.com antiwar.com slash donate but that's it for me for today and i will catch you guys tomorrow thank you <laughs>